Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Woodstock City Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Woodstock City Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out about what's going on around Woodstock City Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Have you ever, um, maybe growing up uh, when you were younger, you, you did something, something stupid or you got in trouble or, or maybe older in your adult life, you ever, you ever been afraid to go home? Um, when I, uh, it was 2006, I was in high school and I, me and a few of my friends, our youth pastor at the time, he had uh, some land in Ackworth and or, I don't know, it's somewhere around here. It was, I don't know, but it was somewhere up here and, uh, and called it the farm. It wasn't really a farm. It was just like a bunch of land and had a little house on it with a pond. And so called it, a, called it a farm. And so we'd occasionally just go out there and, and hang out. And me and a few of, the, of, of my friends and, and my brother, I believe was there. And we were, we were all just hanging out and um, this had a pond, the pond, and we were skipping rocks because that's just, just throw stuff, you know, you dudes, you just throw stuff entertaining ourselves. And, and this particular p- piece of the pond, where side of the pond where we were th- skipping rocks, had a barbed wire fencing around that particular portion. And so it wasn't difficult to, to take a rock and, and throw it through the barbed wire fencing. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of space in there. You don't have to, to really be an athlete to make that happen. So we're just there skip it, skipping rocks. And then we get done. We're kind of getting tired doing it. It's time to get home and, and, and get home in time for dinner. <clears throat> and I say these famous last words. I'm just going to throw one more. I'm just learning this in life. If a sentence ends with just one more, I don't care what it is. I don't think it's going to go well for you. You know what I mean? So I'm like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go one more. So all my, my friends and, 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 you know, my brother, they're walking back up to the cars. They're about 15, 20 yards behind us on the dirt road, just behind us. So I, I pick up one more rock. I find the smoothest stone. And since it's the last one, I'm going to throw it as hard as I can. I'm, I'm going to skip this thing to Tennessee. And so I'm, I'm ready to go. I put all 107 pounds of high school Sammer behind this thing and I launch it. And because I throw it so hard, my aim is off a little bit and I end up hitting, I mean, these posts are five, six feet apart. I end up hitting one of the wooden posts instead and the rock just flies up into the air. And I'm immediately so annoyed. I'm like, this was perfect. This was the thing, this thing was going to go for miles, you know, seven or eight seconds. I mean, it felt like an attorney goes by so much time. In fact, for me to turn around, start walking back to my car, I'm annoyed. And then to all of our surprise, something hits my back windshield and shatters it. And I'm like, what? what like, did a constipated bird, like what happened? I'm trying to piece it together. And then it hit me. No pun intended. The rock that had hit the post had flown up and backwards some 20 yards and landed right on the corner of my windshield with enough force, you know, that safety glass, and the whole thing shattered. And right there, I've got a thousand pieces of shame. And my, and my first thought was, I'm going to tell my dad. <laughs> and so I'm like, this is, I can't believe this is happening to me. What's going on? So I, I go to the gas station right down the road, 25 cents, and vacuum up my shame. And... <clears throat> And then, and, and then start the 20-minute drive home, and the whole time I'm practicing the speech. How am I going to tell him what happened? Last week, we kicked off a brand new series called Heart to 
heart, where over the next few weeks of this series, um, we're kind of living um, in, in, in looking at these three parables that Jesus shared that happened sequentially. They all happened in one chapter in the gospel of Luke. Um, and here in these three parables, they're probably, whether you're a faith person or not, they are probably the most famous and most recognizable parables that Jesus ever told. Um, even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard of the imagery that Jesus uses in these parables. They're recognizable very famous. And in these three parables, Jesus gives us, Jesus gives us a picture of God's heart. And over the the weeks of the series, that's what we're having one big heart to heart, but not my heart to yours, but God's heart to ours. He gives us a beautiful picture of the heart of God toward people. And you've had your fair share of of heart-to-hearts in your life, like in your relationships with people that you work with, with with friends, right? In practical terms, a heart-to-heart is an opportunity to communicate intention. Uh, A heart-to-heart is an opportunity to create space to clarify any misunderstanding. It's when you get real. It's when you get honest. It's when you share the last 1%. And then a heart-to-heart is also an opportunity to challenge wrong thinking. And in these three parables, Jesus does all three. He communicates the intention with why he came. He, he clarifies misunderstanding about what the gospel is and what it isn't. And he challenges wrong thinking happening during the day, especially amongst the religious leaders about the very character and the heart of God. Because to miss the heart of God, to miss the heart of God is to miss the heart of the Christian faith. And Jesus, at the very beginning in Luke chapter 15, he tells us exactly why he's sharing these three parables to begin with. Luke, um, who's documenting this after investigating everything that happened, um, this is how it starts out. We looked at this last week. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this is a derogatory term, They, they, they muttered, this man, this one, he's not even worthy of a title, that one over there, he has the nerve to welcome sinners and eat with tax collectors. Now we went into the tension that this, that this develops here um, into in to, to a lot of depth last week, but just to briefly catch us up, this is a scene that we see over and over again throughout the gospels. The irreligious loved Jesus and the religious hated Jesus. They were repulsed by his behavior because this engaging with, engaging with and building relationships with and opening his heart to and seeking out those on the outside was the very habit of Jesus. Because as we've discovered, it was the very heart of God. But the the religious leaders hated him for it. They were repulsed by those on the outside because for the Pharisees and for the teachers of the law, they used religion. In other words, their obedience to the law of God as a system of exclusion, as a system to draw a line in the sand to decide who did and did not belong in the family of God. And and we said this last week that Jesus, Jesus was the most anti-religious religious figure the first century had ever seen and nobody knew, especially the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They didn't know what to do with them because he came to shatter the categories that they had built up in the name of religion. So it is out of that tension. It is out of that muttering. It is out of that self-righteous attitude that Jesus responds with these three parables. And last week we looked at the first two, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable the lost coin. And, and in these, these parables, this pattern emerges that we talked about last week. Something is lost, 
Something is found, then there's a celebration. Something is lost, something is found, then there's a celebration. Just like that AirPod in your couch, right? It's always the right one. Lost, found, celebration. And, And the sheep and the coin in these two parables, they represent somebody who is disconnected relationally from God. And we said that the main characters in the story, and this trend will continue today, the main characters in the story aren't the ones that are lost. It isn't the object that is lost. The main character in these stories are the ones doing the searching. The shepherd who goes after the sheep, the woman that flips her house upside down to find the coin. They initiate the search. They show concern for the thing that is lost, and they celebrate whenever the relationship is restored. Jesus is building a picture here that God's heart is to restore broken relationship. But here's the irony, and here's kind of our jumping off point as we jump into the third parable today, that that Luke gives us kind of two groups of people, right? You've got the tax collectors and sinners, the irreligious, and then you've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious. Here's the irony, and Jesus is playing this up in the first two, and he really brings it home in the third parable. Both groups of people The irreligious and the religious, both groups of people are spiritually lost. Both the irreligious and the religious are the lost one in the story. Both life paths, the irreligious, one where they're trying to do life apart from God is a spiritual dead end. And the one, the religious, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law that are trying to earn their way to God based on moral excellence, that is also a spiritual dead end end. Both life paths keep them from God's best and both life paths miss the very heart of God. The difference between the two is one group is a little bit more receptive, right? Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. It's not because they had it all figured out and they were good. It's quite the opposite. He was seeking after them because they didn't have it right. They were just more receptive to their need than the ones that thought they were all good. And then with this third parable. He's kind of building the tension. He's ruffling the feathers of the Pharisees and the tax collectors. And then with this third parable, he kind of ties a bow on all that he's doing. And with this third parable, he flips upside down every single thought that either of these two groups of people understood about what it meant to be relationally connected to God. He flips upside down any thought they had about the requirement to enter into the family of God. And today we pick up with the third parable where I'm just telling you, the Pharisees, especially the teachers of all, they would have been losing their mind. Jumping in to verse 11. So Jesus finished the first two and then he continued. He's got three. He's the third one. He continued in this third one. It's longer than the other two. More color commentary and a lot more tension. He says there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one, the younger he goes on, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, according to Jewish law, right, there were two sons. So the older son would have gotten two thirds of the estate and the younger son would have been due one third of the estate upon the death of his father. So here's this younger son coming up to his father and he's saying, hey, I want you to give me your property that will eventually be mine, but you're still alive. It's still yours, but I want you to give it to me anyway effectively, effectively, effectively. Now, this younger son was essentially saying to his brother, I wish you were already dead, but since you are not, I can't wait any longer. It would have been an appalling idea to anybody 
in the first century. It's a jarring request. I mean, quite honestly, it's a jarring request today, but especially back then. And then what the father does is maybe just as jarring. Jesus tells us, and so he, the father, divided his property between the two sons, and he gave the younger son his one-third of the estate. Jesus goes on, he says, not long after that, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off to a distant country. So he, he gets his inheritance, you know, we don't know if he sold it off and got money, whatever, but he just got all that he had, all that, that, that was his, and then he was off. Um, but this isn't like a, we're sending him off to college, go spread your wings, little guy, you know, send the postcard, learn some things. You know, this was not a, this was not a great send off. No, in fact, um, this would have brought shame upon the name of the family. I mean, there was nothing more important in that culture than to preserve the family relationship. And this would have created some whispers. This would have created some gossiping. I mean, culturally, this would have exposed and opened up their family to shame and embarrassment. And then Jesus building just how, how, how bad this younger son is. And then he makes matters even worse. And, and, and there... He squandered in this distant country. He squandered his wealth and wild living. Squanders it. Wastes it all. Left with nothing. Had the thought probably, life apart from my father is just going to be better. Like, I'm just going to go do my own thing. I've been under his roof for far too long. And if I can just get what's mine, go do my own thing, wild and free, it's just going to be better. Nothing and no one to hold me back any more. And if we're being honest, for some of us, it's a really easy place to get to ourselves, isn't it? Life on my own terms is just going to be better. Like who knows better for me than me? I'm going to go do my own thing. I don't need a God to lord over my life and tell me what to do. I don't need a religion. I don't need a system I don't need a God that's going to hold me back. I don't need a God that's going to seemingly rip me off. Just going to do my own thing. Maybe that was part of your story. Maybe that's your story right now. Maybe you know somebody who's living that story. Jesus goes on and he says, and after he'd spent everything that he had, There was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. And then he does the unthinkable in Jewish culture. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Wild and free wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. And then Jesus is just pouring it on with the feeding of the pigs. An unclean animal that according to Jewish law would have all but made you renounce your faith. I mean, you could not you know, eat or in any way be connected to an unclean animal because regardless of your intention, that would mean you are now unclean. And then if any of the hearers of this parable, especially the Pharisees and the tax collectors, thought that this was rock bottom, Jesus was like, hang on. Um, I've got worse. He goes, on and he says the younger son longed. He was so hungry. He was in such desperate need. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. No one gave him anything. So two jarring images right here. You can, you can, you can almost sense the Pharisees and the tax collectors kind of squirming. Even maybe the sinners and or the, the, the teachers, even the sinners and the tax collectors thinking, man, 
that's really bad. Jesus like, I'm all about what you're doing, but that, that he's down and out. It's one thing, right? I mean, to, to eat any kind of pork and pig. Now he wants to share the food that the pigs are eating. That's how hungry he is. He wants to dive into whatever it is that the pigs are eating. It would have been cringeworthy. Right, to eat pork, I mean, you would have essentially renounced your faith. In fact, we, we know um, of, kings, of kings in Greek culture, right? Um, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, who, who reigned some 175 BC to 165 BC in order to get Jews to kind of um, adopt Greek culture and Greek religion, he would force them to eat pork because in doing so, it would force them to renounce their religion because you're just unclean. I mean, this was just down and out. And then the pigs were eating better than him. He was valueless. There was nobody willing to help in his time of need. Here's the picture that Jesus is painting. He is painting a picture of a younger son that is irretrievably lost. He is painting a picture, especially to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in their eyes. He is painting a picture of a younger son that is past the point of no return. He's got no chance. Any chance he had, he's done. It's over. He might as well be dead. Have you ever felt like you were past the point of no return? Maybe you feel it right now. Maybe for some of you, it's a miracle you are sitting church. Maybe for some of you that are Jesus followers, oh, you ever been there? Same sin, same struggle, same issue. And it's like, surely God's grace has run out at this point. Like, like surely, surely it's over. Surely he's over it. Surely he's done. Have you ever deemed somebody past the point of no return? It's just too bad. It's just too far. It's just too far gone. Jesus painting this picture. And then, verse 17, the son has a moment. He says, when he came to his senses, I call this his Dorothy moment. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And he clicks his heels. It's in the Bible. Kidding. When he came, when he came to his senses, when, when he snapped out of it, he makes a realization. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Don't miss this. He comes to his senses. Yes, he, he, he's, he's, he's down and out, but here's what he realizes. He realizes that life with his dad was good because he remembers that his dad is good. Notice it wasn't that, 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 that he was ashamed. It wasn't that anyone showed up and, 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 and was, you know, giving him the business and telling him how he needed to change things. No, no, we had this moment. My dad's servants, like they eat better than me, man. They're getting three courses, appetizers. I mean, they got unlimited refills on the, on the, on the freestyle. Like they, they're way better than what I've got. And they're not even a part of That's how kind my father is. That's how generous my father is. That's how gracious my father is. That's how loving my father is. What have I done? So he makes a decision. I will set out and go back. I'm gonna return. I'm gonna return to my father and I'm gonna say to him, here's a speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up 
and he went back to his father. He decides to go back. He changes his mind and he turns to go home. He turns from the life that he thought he wanted to go back to life with his father. And don't miss this. What brought him back? What brought him to his senses was the goodness of his father. He had hit rock bottom, but in that he was reminded of how good his father was. Jesus, the master storyteller, makes it so clear. There was no other compelling force. It wasn't shame. It wasn't religion. It was the law says this. It was, no, no, no. Jesus is so clear. It is the goodness of his father that draws him back. He made a realization that his father is so good. The only response is in my humility to just go back. And Jesus is painting a picture of repentance. Repentance, a religious word, a religious word that might make some of you cringe a little bit because of a bad church experience where you grew up being told to repent out of fear, to repent or else in the name of religion. But the word repent literally just means to turn, to change one's mind. And here the son is repenting. An admission of his sin and his guilt, it's become clear to him that he's missed the mark. And he turns. And he repents. More on that in a second. And then he practices this speech, y'all. He's got this speech in the whole, I don't know how far he was, but he had a lot of time to practice this speech. And then he makes his way back home and Jesus tells us in verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, I like to imagine a long dirt road driveway. His father saw him and was filled with compassion. A lot of other things he could have been filled with. A lot of other things the Pharisees and the teachers of the law thought he should have been filled with, but he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him. He kissed him. Compassion was the first response. Before any explanation, before any confession, let me just tell you, in that culture, no Middle Eastern father would have run in those circumstances. No Middle Eastern father would have shown that level of emotion, especially to a wayward, sinful son. And this is so beautiful, the way Jesus tells this story. It's like he wants us to see that the father was sitting on the front porch, hoping and waiting, sitting in that rocking chair. I hope today's the day that he comes back. I hope today's the day that he comes home and his heart is full because his son is back. His mind isn't concerned with the reasons that he left. No, no, in this moment, his heart is full because a relationship has been restored. So then the son, he practiced his speech, y'all. He's got it down, so he's going to try and give it. And so he gives this speech. He goes, the son said to him, father, just like he practiced, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Like, this is on me. I've got nothing here. I'm at at the mercy of your response. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's about to drop the line about the hired servants. And then before he finishes, before he gets to the second half of his explanation, the father cuts him off. 
But the father, the father then goes on. He said to his servants, hey, quick, bring me the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. The embrace and the kiss and the robe and the rings and the sandals, they symbolize the love the forgiveness and the honor that the father wanted to bestow on his son to make sure he understood his status as a son hasn't changed. And the way that I read this, the way that I understand this, I don't even think the father heard a second of the son's explanation. You ever been so excited to tell somebody something and and you were so excited, you didn't even hear what they had to tell you because you couldn't wait to just respond and to tell them and to show them. I don't think the father heard a second of what the son was saying. I think it went from hug, compassion. The son's like, what is going on here? Who's playing the trick on me? This is too good to be true. And then he starts explaining. And before he gets halfway through, the father doesn't even hear it. He starts calling the servants. It's time to celebrate. The father never had any intention to make the son work back into favor with the family. Immediately a celebration ensues. Why? For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The son has been resurrected. Literally, literally the the, the Greek reads, he has come back to life again. My son was lost unto me. Now he's found. My son was gone, but now he's back. And in this moment, the sinners and the tax collectors are beginning to get a picture of the grace and the unconditional love that God would have for them. And simultaneously, you can only imagine you've got the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the teachers of the law thinking, if not saying out loud, are you kidding? He didn't deserve that. He didn't earn that. How, how is that fair? How is that possible? Because Jesus is making clear, painting a picture to make unmistakably clear the heart of God for anybody that turns, no matter the story that God's response is always mercy and grace. God's response is always mercy and grace. For those who turn, for those who turn back to, his response is always mercy and grace. It's never too late to turn back. You're never too far gone to come back home. The light is always on. Remember, I pulled into the driveway thinking, okay. Should a 16-year-old have a will? How does this thing go? I go inside and I'm like, hey, dad, you don't need to talk. And I tell him, and I forget, he, he didn't get mad. He didn't really ask any questions. He's like, all right, well, thanks for telling me. We'll, we'll figure it out, you know. And he didn't like put a robe on me, put a ring on my finger and like, let's order chicken wings, you know, like that doesn't really translate, you know what I'm saying? But, but the next morning, I wake up, and I'm, I, I immediately, I'm, I mean, I'll never forget this. I wake up, and I go downstairs, and I, uh, it was a Saturday, I wanted, to, I wanted to go outside to see, you know, maybe, like, maybe it was a dream. 
know what I mean? Maybe, maybe it'll happen. Maybe I'll have a windshield there. Maybe nothing, you know, so I go outside and I turn right out of my garage. And it's like 9 a.m. in the morning. And to my bewilderment, I see somebody in the driveway replacing the back windshield. And even more, my dad's talking to him in Arabic. I learned how deep the Arabic network is here in Atlanta. We've got a windshield guy. Dad's like, yeah, third cousin from Nazareth. What? Replace the windshield. My dad never, never asked me to pay for it. I don't even know how much it costs, if it costs anything. I don't, we never had a conversation about it. It wasn't a, hey, don't, what were you thinking? Or, hey, next time. He just fixed it. Could have made me pay. That would have been fair. Could have done a number of things that would have been fair. Instead, he just fixed it. He just extended grace, which is undeserved favor. God's unconditional love for you and for me operates outside of the bounds of our behavior. It would not be unconditional otherwise. Yes, and Jesus makes clear there are natural consequences for our sin. Like there's natural consequences for just saying, I'm going to do my own thing. I mean, I'm just telling you the way of Jesus is better, right? There's natural consequences. It's one of the reasons why God hates sin so much because sin will do nothing but kill every good thing in your life. And what good heavenly father would want you to kill any good thing in your life? But sin, we've got to understand this. It does not push God away. In fact, it's the very reason why he came. Because we've got a sin problem. Do you know why? Do you know why this was called the parable of the prodigal son? I, I never knew this. I, y'all, y'all gonna think your pastor is unqualified. I had, I, I've been to seminary. I went through four years of seminary and I, I, I missed this. Do you know what the word prodigal means? Y'all gonna be like, man, this, I'm never listening to him preach again. I, I, I thought the word prodigal meant someone that ran away. That's what I thought. And may, if you think that, you are not alone, okay? Uh, I really, that's why I was like, yeah, prodigal, ran away, ran away. You're, if you're a prodigal, you run away. <clears throat> and then I read a book by, uh, by, path, by pastor and author, Tim Keller. And bef- before he even gets the first chapter, he defines what par- prodigal is. And I'm like, oh, wow, I totally misunderstood this my entire life. The word prodigal doesn't mean someone that ran away. Tim Keller made clear that prodigal actually means, you look it up, it means recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. He's not the prodigal son because he ran away. He's the prodigal son because he recklessly spent everything. But then Tim Keller, he makes this powerful point in his book that has changed the way I see this parable, that the real prodigal in this situation, it's not even the son. It's the father especially when we understand that Jesus is trying to give us a picture of who God is and his heart for people. In fact, Tim Keller names his book after this idea. It's not the story of the prodigal son. It's about a prodigal God. A prodigal God whose response, again, the father, whose response, it was beyond the wildest imagination of anybody listening. It would have been beyond the wildest imagination of the son 
The father did not require his son to demonstrate any pure motivation or that he's really turned his life around before he showers him with love and grace. You could call that recklessly extravagant. There were no guarantees that he wouldn't go back to his former life. In fact, we have no idea if the son ever went back to his former life. In fact, most commentators and scholars that talk about this parable would tell you that the abrupt ending, the quick turn from he's back to the celebration puts the emphasis on the father's unconditional love even more than whether or not the son had it all together because that wasn't the thing that Jesus was concerned with. It gives us a picture of the heart of God, who was recklessly extravagant. He spent everything when he sent his son to give his life so that his response was always mercy and grace. Prodigal God who held nothing back to make a way for you and for me. In the story The son's reckless living is met with the father's reckless grace. As does God's reckless grace meet you and me wherever we are. And it meets whoever in your life you've deemed past the point of no return. The prodigal God held nothing back and did not wait for us to prove our worth or whether or not we continue to get it right. I had a conversation with a couple of people a couple of years ago that um, were, thought the idea of calling God's love reckless is inappropriate or in some way demeaning to God, but it's quite the opposite. There's nothing more loving and grace-filled than reckless love that is given freely, abundantly, and endlessly despite our behavior, despite whether or not we earn it, despite whether or not we're worthy of it because the truth is we're not and we can't. But God, in his kindness and in his love, has made a way anyway. And that's what Jesus wants to make abundantly clear. So, our response, repent. Repent. Not in the way that maybe you've heard that before. Not in the context that maybe you've heard that before. Not repent out of fear. Not repent in the name of religion that Jesus came to squash. Not repent or else. Repent because of the goodness of God. To turn back toward for the first time in a long time or to turn to for the first time because there is a God who in his goodness wants to show you unconditional love, wants to show you mercy and grace. He wants that love to draw you back. Because maybe you've chased down every other dead end. And that's what they are. Dead ends. Maybe it's a miracle you find yourself back in church today. But the younger son learned that his status as a son was never going to be dependent upon his behavior. The gospel writer, John, writes this in John chapter 1, verse 12. He, He says, yet to all 
who did receive him, talking about Jesus, who, who, who put their faith in him, to those who believed in his name, what he came to do, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who believed entrance into the family of God, the gospel that Jesus wanted to clarify, it's believe in Jesus' name, not behave into his family. We can be relationally connected because of grace. We can't earn it, which means we could never lose it. And so, right where you are, no matter where you are, there's an opportunity to repent, to turn, to change your mind, to change and to turn from unbelief or a wrong way or wrong thinking because in the turning on the other side of that turn is there a heavenly father that offers the grace and forgiveness that we just can't quite seem to get a big enough picture of. So if you're in the room and you've never placed your faith in Jesus before, the fact that he died for our sins and he rose from the grave on the third day so that whoever would put their faith in him could have a reestablished, reconciled relationship with our heavenly father, all done by grace, right where you are. You can repent. You can change your belief. You can choose to believe right where you are. The Jesus that came to save you, knowing that the father's response is always mercy and grace. For some of you, You've been following Jesus for quite some time. It's a, it's a repenting from a way of thinking, repenting from your own way, repenting from a sin, not because you're gonna get it right every time again, but another moment to remind ourselves, okay, I'm gonna let the love of God draw me back. My sin doesn't push him away. If anything, it's the reason why he came. It's not too late. And you are never too far. And just like I like to picture the father in the parable sitting on the rocking chair just waiting, the light is always on. For you, for those around you, his response is always mercy and grace. That is the good news of the gospel. And that is the very heart of God. And then, in the midst of the celebration, remember, this is the story of a father who had two sons. And the older one is not happy. And that is what we'll pick up and conclude our series next week, Heart heart. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus and thank you for grace. Thank you that we can't earn it because that means we can't lose it. I pray, Father, you would give us a, a, a broader picture and a clearer picture of your love for us. It's a love that changes everything. Thank you that's unconditional in nature. I pray, Lord, you would draw hearts back to you today. We're grateful. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.